Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Ju Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced, exceeding, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasured, treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Lord, allow us this morning to be humble and receptive to your word. May we be drawn, Lord, to the fact that you are the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. And Lord, may we seek to understand, Lord, the impact of that on our lives, on our hearts, but Lord, even to those that are around us today. Lord, give us, give us ears to hear and, and minds that are willing to, to think through um, this very familiar story. And Lord, would you be glorified in, in all that is said and done for you this morning, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This, uh, this morning, we began with a song, and um, it's the song, Joy to the World. Let me just read the first stanza here. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. And then verse two, joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. Verse three, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Now one of the things that we need to recognize here is the song Joy to the World, written by Isaac Watts, is not a Christmas song. <laughs> okay, we sing it. Because it's associated with Christmas. It's talking about the, the, the king coming. But it's actually a song that is talking about the second coming. This king coming to rule and to reign. And to, to wipe away the, the, the effects and the presence of sin. Now it's not wrong to sing it at Christmas. Because there is something about the Christmas story that actually, uh, for many of us, can be difficult actually can be a hindrance because we get so easily caught up with the stuff of our culture rather than thinking about what does it mean that this baby is in this manger? Because as Johnny said earlier, and I want to repeat, Christmas is not about a little baby cooing. It's not about looking at his hands and his feet and his eyes and going, ah. Oh. 
The sentimentality of that birth is not what we see in Scripture. But the coming of that baby to this earth is the significance of what God has promised will take place. And so it's so easy for us then to be drawn away in our context to think, might want to say, superficially about Christmas and not emphasize the bigger picture of what is going on. So Jesus Christ comes to this earth, Emmanuel God with us, but he comes to this earth for a reason, right? He comes to die. He comes to go to a cross, and on that cross, bear the wrath of the Father for the sake of the sin of the world for those who would believe in him. And even with a future look, there is the promise and the certainty and the longing of his return to this earth to rule and to reign for eternity. And that's what joy to the world the Lord has come is all about. It's seeing the whole culmination of the redemptive plan all wrapped up in his coming back to this earth. And so friends, I share that with you to say a couple of things. To say, you know what, we need to, we need to just recognize that it's so easy for us then to have all the, the lingering effects of the cultural mindset that we bring into our Christmas season. And this morning, we're going to a passage that we probably read over and over and over again. And one of the problems with passages like this is that we think, okay, I've heard this before, and it's easy to kind of tune it out and to not necessarily focus in, not only on what it says, but the impact of what it says. And so this morning, I want to begin by just walking through four words that will help us think through what's going on here. The first one is this word familiarity. And that's what I'm trying to emphasize here, that familiarity with the Christmas story makes the, the study of God's word in light of Christmas that much more difficult. All right? I mean, how many of you have been to some kind of a kid's program this, this Christmas season? Right? And, and the, the, the baby ends up there in the manger with Mary, and along come the shepherds and the sheep, and, and then somehow from somewhere come the wise men, Right? And the problem is that story is messed up because the sheep were not there uh, with the shepherds and the wise men. Those are two separate occasions, two separate circumstances. And our familiarity with the story can then bring some confusion to understanding a passage like this. All right, so often we think we have all the facts, we think we know the story, and so there is the possibility to tune out. So this morning I want to caution you and I want to encourage you, uh, think afresh, read afresh. And I'll just be honest with you, as, as a pastor, as someone who is proclaiming God's word Christmas after Christmas, it gets difficult to be refreshed with this Christmas story because it is, of all the stories, probably the most familiar to so many people. But there's a lot of confusion there, right? Secondly, I want to talk about timing. And let's look at this passage, and I want us to think about timing. When did these events take place? I've touched on it, but look at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So it says, now, after Jesus was born. So obviously it was after, but there's a significant amount of time after. 
And there are two facts in this text that point to the fact that these events took place between one to two years after the birth of Jesus. First of all, there is the word child that is used, and it's the word technion, and it means not an infant, but a, ch- a young child, usually a toddler, okay? So that the word there is talking about a, 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 a young child in that sense, not an infant. So you have, you have a completely different word, and we use that too, right? How's your infant baby doing? We understand the difference there, as opposed to, you know, how's that toddler doing? We understand in that context, we mean two different things, right? Now also, if you look at verse, um, verse 16, you'll notice that as we go through the story, and uh, we know the story, but in verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in uh, all that region who were two years old or under, okay? And, and the point there is that he had figured out when this child was born and likely how old that child was, and in order to try and eradicate him, he is going to kill all these boys that are two years and younger. So we have a, an understanding at least of the, of the timing of what's going on, all right? Um, I'm not saying it's wrong to have a Christmas pageant that has that. I'm just saying let's just be mindful that we don't allow the culture then to, to feed our understanding of what's going on in the text of Scripture, Okay? So there's a, an issue then of timing. Then there's also this, this emphasis of this theme of the king of the Jews. And I just wanna, I just wanna show you how this, this theme unfolds and, and different words that are used here to describe um, Jesus as this king of the Jews. And we'll just kind of work our way through the text here. Right? Here's how he is described in this passage. He's the king of the Jews. He is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the ruler. We could say the shepherd, but he's the ruler who will shepherd his people. Those are two different, two different emphasis and two different titles. And then ultimately at the end of the passage, he is the child. He's named the child three times and he's, he's called him, re- referring to the child, twice. So you have this, this picture of the king of the Jews, all right, this, this Jesus, this Christ, all ultimately coming and focusing on this child. There's an emphasis in this text uh, to point to the fact that this king of the Jews is found now in this child, all right? There's this whittling down to this moment. So that's the, this idea of the king of the Jews. Then I want you also to think about geography as we're thinking through this passage. If we're thinking through geography here, notice uh, how it adjusts as we process through this text. You have these wise men who are from where? The east. Where do they come to? Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem, after they ask some questions, where do they go to? Bethlehem, and then where in Bethlehem do they go? Do they go to the place, is what the text says, and then it says this place is where the house is, and then ultimately to the child. So you can just see in this passage, there's a number of emphases going on here that are broad, that are now being focused in on one character, and that character is this little child. Not this little baby cooing and going, ah, but this child who is born the king of the Jews. All right? And the emphasis there is not that he is born to be king of the Jews. He is born king of the Jews. He already is the king of the Jews. And as the news about the birth of the king of the Jews spreads, 
people begin to react. Let's pick it up at verse one and just kind of see how that unfolds. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. That the word saying there is in a, a, a Greek tense which means they kept on asking. They were coming into town, where is this one who is to be born king of the Jews? Or his born king of the Jews? Where is he, where is he? It's a repeated question. And the more the question is asked, what happens? People are wondering, well why are you asking? There's a, there's a king already born that is the king of the Jews? And so people start to talk, all right? Now you, you know the story, you know how this kind of bubbles up. So the, the, the emphasis for us this morning is this. The question that we need to ask our text, or that our text is seeking to answer, is this. How will people respond to this king of the Jews? How do people respond to Jesus, the king? And we're going to look in this passage and see how people respond you know, at the birth scene, or at the, 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 the scene of Jesus' uh, toddler age. But those realities still ring true today. And so we want to make sure that we're not just leaving it all back there in Bethlehem or in Jerusalem, but we're recognizing that these are realities that we live with today. So the first response we're going to look at is what I'm calling willful indifference. And we're, going to, we're not going to go with the flow of the text here. There's a reason for that. Um, but I want to focus in on, first of all, these chief priests and scribes who are indifferent and ultimately ignore the king. This is willful indifference. I say willful because they're choosing to do this. Okay? Now let's think through this. Who are these chief priests and scribes? Right? They were the religious leadership of that day. The chief priests oversaw the 24 orders of priests who lived in and around the city of Jerusalem. They were made up of a, a number of chief priests. What I understand is that a chief priest was kind of put in place by the political leadership at that point in time. And so you had a new political leader, you, you had a new chief priest. So you could actually have multiple chief priests living at the same time. But they all kind of served in this kind of, this, this order. And, and by the time of Jesus' coming, they had become more of a political arm of the religious uh, leadership than, you might want to say, the spiritual arm. So when you think of the chief priests, think more the, the political side of the religious um, leadership of that day. Then you have the scribes, and they were the, the teachers of the law. They had inherited the responsibility of copying the scriptures. But over time, they had developed into a class of teachers uh, well-trained in interpreting and applying the Old Testament as well. So many of the scribes were also Pharisees. Not all of them, but many of them were. So I'm just going to summarize it and just say this. They were students of the word. They were teachers of the word. And really for the Jews that were living there, they were the examples of what it means to follow the word. And of course the word there being what God had revealed in the Old Testament. So now Herod turns to them with a question about where this king of the Jews is to be born. And this is what Matthew records for us, verse five. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Now, doesn't that strike you as a little strange? That here we have the, the ones who know the word, who teach the word, who are the examples of the word, and it doesn't take too long for Herod, although he is asking repeatedly, it doesn't take them too long to just give the answer. It's not that they didn't have the knowledge of this stuff. But the question then is, so why were they not looking for this king, right? This, this matter of trivia was well known and generally understood. The ruler who will shepherd God's people will come from Bethlehem, the birthplace of the king of the Jews, and that was only five miles away from them. So why are they no longer looking for the king? Now, the text doesn't tell us. So I just wanna do some reasoning here, at least throw some things out that are helpful for us to consider. I think first of all, we can say it's possible that they were afraid of Herod. Right? And, and any time there is a challenge to Herod, and we'll get into that in just a little bit, um, tells us in this passage that all Jerusalem was troubled too. All right? So maybe, maybe we'll just keep quiet because we don't want to cause any trouble here. At least we don't want to be the ones that are causing the trouble because if that happens, our lives might be in danger. And you can certainly relate to that. It's understandable. I mean, on a human level, do you want to speak up and, and have a leader lash out at you? It's also possible that they were afraid of the Christ. All right? It's also possible they were afraid of the Christ. That it's possible that they, they knew that they had drifted from the teaching of the Old Testament into what they were actually practicing now. It's also possible that they simply didn't care. Again, no, no evidence for that necessarily, but I think there's some things that that, that may be contributing there. But, but what we do know from the rest of the Gospels is that they were extremely blinded by their religion. I mean, don't we see Jesus constantly confronting the religious leadership about this is what it says in the Old Testament, but this is what you say. And challenging them with the very text that they are supposed to know, that they are teachers of, that they are examples for. So the Jews, during the silence of the 400 years that separated the Old Testament from the New Testament, added to the law of Moses all sorts of regulations. They started out as good intentions, precautions to make sure that they were keeping the law, but these good intentions and, and new, might want to say, preventative standards drifted them away from their original intent to become the standard. And you know what it's like. You know, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, at home, you, you, you tell your children, um, you know, you're in school, so you can't watch TV on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, all right? Okay, and, and the reason the parent's doing that is because they want their children to do what? They want them to do their homework and get to bed at a good time and, you know, clean the room or take a shower, whatever it might be, right? But then after doing that, let's say for a couple of years, now it becomes a rule and a standard in and of itself, the intent behind it was to protect the children. Now it becomes something that it wasn't necessarily intended to be. And that's how things kind of happened with, with this, this religious leadership. There were well-intended parameters so that they wouldn't somehow break the law, but then these, these parameters became the standard and became the law, and they ended up focusing on those rather than the law itself. 
And so as a result of that, they became blind to the Messiah that the Old Testament was actually talking about. God had revealed himself in the Old Testament. They had memorized lots of the Old Testament, but they also rejected it, and so were indifferent at his coming. So I really think that there was an aspect of their blindness that, that resulted in their indifference. Now I want you to notice the passage quoted in Micah chapter five and verse two. So turn, if you would please, to Micah chapter five and verse two. If you don't know where that is, go back from Matthew a few pages and you'll find it real, real fast, okay? So it's in the Minor Prophets, Micah chapter five and verse two. Now. Keep in mind what is quoted by the chief priests and scribes to Herod. And now let's read Matthew chapter, or Malachi chapter five, sorry, Micah chapter five and verse two. Now you're really confused, aren't you? Okay, it's somewhere in the Old Testament, just trust me, all right. It says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for, uh, for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Just pause there. That's, that's the quote that we have in Matthew's account. That's what they're saying. But keep reading here. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now what is going on there? What is Micah talking about? See, Bethlehem, this, this king of the Jews, will come from lowly Bethlehem, and that is where Rachel's tomb is located. That is where last week in our study of 1 Samuel, we read about Saul stopping at and passing by Rachel's tomb. Remember that? And remember, the story of 1 Samuel is about is looking for that king, trying to see how God is going to raise up this, raise up this, this leader to, to be the king of Israel, and ultimately that is found in David. But David then, of course, is a foreshadowing of the ultimate king who is Christ. So all this is rallying, all this is happening in Bethlehem. But we're also told that he will be a, a ruler who will shepherd his people. He will be that, that ruler who is tender, but he will, a ruler who will be firm, but he's also a shepherd who will be tender, okay? So this is a clear picture of who Jesus Christ really is. Culture wants Jesus Christ to be what? Tender, gentle Jesus, meek and mild but he is also a ruler who has authority and power. He's also a shepherd who is tender and cares. But then it says about this, this coming forth, this is the part of, of, of Micah 5.2 that I, I think we often, um, uh, we, we don't recognize or don't spend time in, but it really is screaming out to us. His coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. In other words, the coming of the Christ, Messiah, has been in process since the beginning of Israel's history. And that is why Jesus was able to take the two disciples on the road to Emmaus through Moses and the prophets and in doing that, show them how they pointed to himself. So his, his coming was prophesied. His coming was being prepared in the Old Testament and these religious leaders knew the Old Testament, studied it, memorized it, taught it and yet were willfully indifferent to the fact that the king 
was to be born in Bethlehem. They could quote it, but they're not showing any passion or activity with it. They're blind to it. So why is there such a willful indifference among people who have a knowledge of God? You probably are going to rub shoulders this week with other believers, and some of them are going to be mature, some of them are going to be nominal. Some of them might be just religious people. They, they go under the umbrella of Christianity. But there is a sense in which they're really ultimately indifferent to the fact that Jesus is the king. Sometimes it's because people like their status quo. They like the world they're living in. They like their situation in life. They like what's happening. They have a, a world system that they're kind of comfortable with. They don't want anything to rock that. It could be they have a distorted view of God and his will. I think that's a real problem. They may just um, have become religious, in other words, thinking about the form, but actually have forgotten God in the midst of it all, okay? Now, much of American Christianity lives and views Christ in this way. The real Jesus has been replaced by a warm, fuzzy substitute Jesus, made by selecting parts of uh, of the Bible that people like and fit into their own worldview rather than the Jesus revealed in the Bible. He is a ruler who will shepherd his people. So Christmas isn't about this cute baby cooing in the manger. It's not about little hands and feet like we've talked about. To look at the baby in the manger in such sentimental ways is to ignore the incredible fact of God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, he is God with us. I've told you that I have this Jehovah's Witness guy that comes to my door every once in a while. It's been a while, and a few weeks ago he came by. I think I stood there for about an hour. I mean, my, my kids, my family are all doing their thing, and Adam came and stood and just kind of listened for about half an hour, and he's like, okay, this is too long, and all that kind of, I mean, you know, it was, it was, it was interesting. And talking, we kind of went all through different parts and stuff. But he said, all right, let me take you to a passage of Scripture. You tell me what you think. And I want you to just to understand the thinking and the willful um, ignorance or the willful indifference to God's word and the way in which it is twisted to satisfy that. So he said, let, let me take you to, to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. I said, Okay. And he said, all right, let's read it. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, in their translation, it says, with us is God. And and, and this is what he said to me. He says, so this doesn't show that Jesus is God. This is just Mary, who is having a baby, and chooses then to worship Jehovah by reminding everyone that God, in a general sense, is with them. See the difference there? Now, do we believe that God is with us? Yes. But is there something significant about Jesus, or the Son of God, or the Prince, you can use a number of different names, the Messiah coming to be with us in a particular way? Yes, the Old Testament flows through that theme. Let me just kind of work with with that a little bit here. To deny the emphasis and the flow of Scripture in the Old Testament um, is is what they were doing, okay? 
The temple and the tabernacle were intended to be symbols of his, that would be God's divine presence with his people. God's Shekinah glory rested in both the temple and the tabernacle. Let me ask you this though. Was God omniscient at that point in time, even though his Shekinah glory was in the temple and the tabernacle? Absolutely. Was God omnipresent? In other words, could you get away from God even though his Shekinah glory was being revealed there in the tabernacle and the temple? He was still all those things, right? He was still um, omnipresent. But there was a specific aspect of God that was there present with the people where they could, they could see it, they knew it, they could look over during the tabernacle days and they could see the cloud, they could see the fire and be reminded of God and his presence in a specific way, but they knew it also in a general sense. Then what are we told in scripture? In John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God reveals himself in the Shekinah glory in the tabernacle, reveals himself in the Shekinah glory in the, in the, 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 the temple, and then ultimately when Jesus comes, he is coming as God in the flesh. It is God with us, not in a general sense, but in a specific sense. He is the Shekinah glory. He's Christ. But you see how, how you can have a knowledge of a lot of things about, might want to say, the Bible, but you can be blind to the truth of who Christ really is. So we live in a culture that has a Judeo-Christian ethic and a Judeo-Christian basis and it's possible to grow up and to hear God's word spoken, taught, referenced, even in a nominal sense. And when you believe, or sorry, when you live in a context like Castro Valley that has a number of large churches and Christian school and Christian radio all around and all sorts of Bible studies, it is easy to get comfortable with a general knowledge of the Bible. But friends, biblical knowledge is not enough. To have God's truth and not believe it, to have God's truth and to ignore it, to have God's truth and to be indifferent to it is one of the saddest realities in all the world. God has gifted us his word that reveals him. Now just to, to, to know it in an academic sense is not sufficient. God wants that word to penetrate deep into our souls and to be the means by which we are living life for his glory. But it's certainly a place that we can find ourselves if we are not willing to take God seriously. And so I want to encourage you to humble yourself before him once again this Christmas season. And every time, by the way, in the Old Testament, almost every time, when we see a revival taking place, it's because the word of God is taken seriously and the people are hungry for the word of God to be spoken and that fills their souls, it fills their hearts, it draws them to repentance, it draws them to worship, it draws them to live in a way that would please him. We need the word. And these people, of course, these chief priests and scribes are the ones who should know better. But they are willfully indifferent. Isn't that sad? 
Now from there, we want to go to the next group, which would be evidence here by um, Herod. Some, like Herod, are hostile and oppose the king, and so I'm talking here about hostile opposition. Now this is Herod the Great, um, or some people might say Herod the Not-So-Great, okay, once you know about him. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, from whom we get most of our information about Herod, we're told that he was a half-Jew and half-Edomian, um, that he had risen to power in Israel because of the purposes of the Romans. In other words, he was a puppet king. He was there in their place to do their bidding. He was given some freedom as long as he, as long as he did what they wanted him to do. And in his early years, you've got to give him credit, um, under his leadership, he was known as a great builder of public works. Um, he he, he um, worked hard to kind of bring things up to par, so to speak. He was an effective diplomat in working with both Israel and with Rome. And he was instrumental and actually a, a good example during a time of famine when uh, he, uh, apparently what I understand is he, he melted down gold objects to sell so that he could pay for food for his people. So there's an aspect where you say, wow, this is actually, this is really good stuff you're hearing about this king. But, but as he continued on in that position as uh, king in Israel, um, uh, he began to change his tactics a little bit. He raised the taxes, they became oppressive, he conscripted people into his building projects, and ultimately, as he continued to grow older, he got more and more paranoid about threats to his leadership. And that ultimately resulted in him fearing plots, in particular from those who were closest to him. So he had numerous of his sons put to death, um, as well as wives, and uh, some of his close friends put to death. The, the, the emperor of Rome at that time, Caesar Augustus, once said, making a pun, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. And that's quite a legacy. All right? But this is the context. This is the leader. And now notice, just, just notice what happens here as this story unfolds. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Literally agitated. His mind is bouncing around. He's, he's agitated. He's troubled. He's trying to figure out, what do I need to do? But it says, and all Jerusalem with him. So here he is. We see his, his trouble. All right? He was in inward turmoil and paranoid about any talk of another king of the Jews. Remember, they're, they're coming asking, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews, not who will be. And so now he's feeling threatened. And if he's feeling threatened, that's not a good thing. If Herod is troubled, then Jerusalem certainly would be. If Herod is troubled, then it didn't matter whom he thought was against him. Everyone knew and anticipated it would be a bloody season, and ultimately it would be. Let me just reference you to verses 15 and, or 16 and 17, all that section. So Herod asked two questions in his trouble. Question number one, where is the Christ, the king of the Jews, to be born? Verse four, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. So the word, um, the word 
imperfect. Um, the, the word here that is, that is uh, translated inquired is in an imperfect tense. And so it, in, it indicates that he was asking this question repeatedly, where, 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 where? And so they answer in Bethlehem, as we mentioned before, because it's common knowledge. So Herod, in his troubled mind, is thinking along these lines. Okay, so far so good. I know where the king of the Jews will be born, but when did his birth take place? And that's the next question. He needs to determine when. See, he has a plan. He's a conniver. He's, he is countered these, I would say, false plots against him that his thought have been out there. His mind is working. What can I do to eradicate this threat? So verse seven, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Matthew now begins to show the evil manipulative side of Herod. A meeting secretly, just this language, meeting secretly to determine with great accuracy where the event of the king of the Jews' birth actually took place. And you can hear him charming the wise men. So tell me, how do you know and where's it gonna be? And at what time? And of course, he is saying to them, oh, I'm very, very interested. I want to help. I even want to work together with you because I want to worship him true or too. Verse eight, and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Again, search carefully, literally interrogate with accuracy, he wanted to make sure he knew where this one born king of the Jews is. Ultimately not to worship him, but to eradicate him, to remove him. And again, we go down to verse 16 where we find the truth of the, of the matter. And that is this, that Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Jerusalem may have avoided trouble that day. But trouble came to Bethlehem in the form of the mass murder of male children under two years of age. I mean, we're hearing about mass murders of children in the news, are we not? And we're, we're horrified about it. But Herod didn't think twice about going in and and murdering these boys. And that's why Matthew quotes Jeremiah in verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice, uh, sorry, he quotes Jeremiah, but this is actually from Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. Um, she refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That's Jeremiah 31, 15. So truly, Herod's hostility is evidence of his opposition to the Christ, the King of the Jews. Now the question is why are, why is there such hostile opposition? They, they, they see, people see Christ and his followers and his gospel as a threat, it's one of the reasons. People also see Christ and his followers and the gospel as an interference in their lives. You remember the, the story of Jesus going uh, across to the, the other side of the, the lake and he casts out a, some demons um, in, in, out of a man but into pigs? And how do the people respond? Get out of here! You're destroying all of our pigs! 
there was a lack of real spiritual understanding. The story, of course, goes on that later on, um, those people end up coming in and are converted, or at least worshiping, um, because of the testimony of the demoniac, and that's a whole other story. But it's just an amazing reality that people are hostile to Christ, hostile to God, hostile to his people, because they believe that they will somehow interfere with their lives. They also fear the exposure that he will bring them. A lot of people just, they're hostile to God because they do not want to be exposed. They don't want what's going on in their heart. They don't want their behavior, their sinful attitudes, their hearts to be on display to anyone. And so instead of receiving the, the wonderful good news, they mock it, they scorn it, they ridicule it, they make fun of Christians in Christ. They stand against the principles or beliefs that flow naturally out of God's word. They seek to undermine Christ wherever and whenever they can. So understand this. Where Jesus is born in the hearts of men, where Jesus is faithfully proclaimed and lived out, there are sure to be Herods. They come in all sorts of different forms. Not just people in positions of power, and that would be true, but also the common man. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is sweet medicine to some and a pebble in the shoe to others. They are threatened by his message of dying on the cross for their sins. Why? Because they don't see themselves as sinful. No, they they see themselves as having some bad and and some good, and that's why they like Santa Claus, because they see, you know, the good outweighs the bad, and maybe I'll get some good things this year. Remember, God doesn't weigh us in that way. He says, There is no good in you. I'm not giving you any gift based on your good or bad. I'm giving you grace because you are sinful and because Christ has paid for your sinfulness. They see themselves as sophisticated, above such simplistic crutches of the common man. They they see themselves as liberated from the bondage and the restraints of an oppressive religion that calls them to repentance. They see themselves also as responsible to be the ones to free others who might also be in in the oppressive grip of, I would say, religious Christianity. Helping the blind followers to see the light, they would say. Their light, their truth, their form of self-idolatry. Now many like Many are like Herod. They're hostile to Christ and oppose him as their king. We see it in the culture where, um, where it's become offensive to say things like Merry Christmas, um, which I am gladly saying at this season um, to people as I interact with them. Um, I, and that doesn't mean I don't want to be insensitive to others that may not be Christians, right? Um, I, I just, but this is a Christmas season for me. And if someone says to me, you know, happy Hanukkah, I'd be like, hey, that's great. Happy Hanukkah to you. But I'll say, Merry Christmas. You understand? I mean, there's, there's a reasonableness to that. Um, I enjoyed watching a pi- or seeing a picture um, a couple of weeks ago of uh, one of those Christmas tree lots, and there was a sign, and it said, holiday trees, $20. And then underneath it said, Christmas trees, 10 Your choice. This Christmas, 
One of the biggest movies that is hitting the screens is The Exodus, Gods and Kings, which is supposedly based on the biblical story of Moses and the children of Israel in Egypt. And I say supposedly because Ridley Scott, the director of the movie, said to Religious News Service that he looked at the film much as he looks at science fiction. Just just think through this. Here's what he says. Because I never believe in it, I had to convince myself every step of the way as to what did make sense and what did not make sense and where I could reject and accept. And therefore, I had to come to my own decisions and internal debates. So the parting of the sea is the result of a tsunami that caused the waters of the Red Sea to retreat long enough for the people of Israel to pass along the edge. The blood in the water is the result of red clay as well as a a feeding frenzy from the crocodiles. That's that's a lot of crocodiles. (laughs) I mean, you know, this, this this is all classic liberal theology that wants to do away with any any supernatural dynamic of what's going on. And when you think of it in those terms, you just think about how much devastation there has to come on a natural level to produce you know, this, this, this Nile that's full of blood, I mean full of blood so that it has an effect on the crops and everything, and it's your crocodiles? And what happened to the crocodiles after they ate? I mean, did they just go off to like crocodile heaven and kind of you know, bake in the sun and... I mean, just there's some ridiculous ideas, but this is the kind of stuff I'm not willing to take the supernatural as being the supernatural. I'm not willing to take the word of God as the word of God. I've got to come up with my own ideas that somehow fit into my worldview. Even lead actor Christian Bale chimes in with his unbelief of Moses. He says this, Moses is one of the most barbaric individuals that I've ever read about in my life. And I'm asking myself, what have you been reading? I mean, he hit a rock, right? Now, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie and stuff like that, but they're making him out to be like a terrorist leader, okay? And that he's actually been raised by God to go into battle to be the, 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 the chief warrior. That's not what Scripture says. In fact, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in who? The Lord our God. That's, 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 that's one of the points there is God uses the plagues to press in on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The point is it's not the Israelites that are doing any of this. It's God. Not in the movie. Now he's saying, well, what does that have to do with what we're talking about here? How does that relate? Pastor, I was just on a rant because this movie's out. That's all it is, right? <laughs> No, it fits perfectly into this if you just hang with me, okay? In Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 25, Peter is preaching in Solomon's portico, and Peter is emphasizing that the men of Israel had, in their ignorance, killed Jesus. And in verse 22, Peter connects Jesus to Moses. And we read the following. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, From among your brothers, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And Jesus is the prophet that is raised up to be just like him. That's the whole point of what Peter is saying. 
Also, the writer of Hebrews connects Christ into the life of Moses when he says in 11.26, the following, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses, in the Old Testament, was considering Christ, the Messiah? Yeah. Now, he didn't quite understand the full-blown aspects of the Messiah, but there was, there was a, a submission to God and to his purposes and to his promises that he said, I want God and I want his wishes more than I want to listen to Pharaoh. And so when God said, listen, I want you to take a lamb, unspotted, and I want you to kill it, and I want you to put the blood on the doorpost, he's beginning what's called the Passover, and that lamb, of course, we know, is a foreshadowing of a sacrifice that will ultimately take place that John the Baptist talks about, behold the lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And all the sacrifices of the Old Testament point to the one great sacrifice, Jesus Christ, on that cross, dying for our sins. That is all part of this, this aspect of this Messiah coming. So just listen to how Moses ultimately is a type of Christ, an Old Testament example of the Christ that was to come. I need to be quick here. Moses was hidden away in Egypt as a baby for his own protection when Pharaoh decreed that all Hebrew boys, uh, baby boys were to be killed. Jesus was hidden away in Egypt as a baby for his own protection when Herod sought to kill him. Moses willfully left his royal home and high position in Pharaoh's place for the sake of his people. Jesus, the royal son of God, willingly left the glory of heaven to come to earth for the sake of his people. In due course, Moses came up out of Egypt to spend 40 years in the wilderness. In due course, Jesus also came up out of Egypt. He spent 40 days in the wilderness. Moses was the deliverer of Israel out of the bondage of slavery of Egypt. He redeemed the Israelites from their hard taskmasters with the blood of the Passover lamb. Jesus is the deliverer of not only Israel, but also of the Gentiles. He has delivered us from the bondage and slavery to sin. He has redeemed us from the hard taskmaster, Satan, with his very own blood. Now the point is this. If you attack or try to discredit Moses, you are in fact attacking or attempting to discredit Christ. I'm not mad, I'm just passionate right now, okay? If you think that Moses was the most barbaric man in all of history, then you must conclude that Christ was the most barbaric man in, ever in history. You see how this goes? A man who is opposed to Christ loves to discredit Christ. He is overjoyed when he can rewrite the script and make Jesus out to be something that he is not. He is delighted when he can confuse not only the mass of unbelievers, but even cause havoc among those who name the name of Christ. I would encourage you to read Deuteronomy 34, 7 through 12, just as a, as a summary picture of the impact of Moses on the, the people of Israel. I kind of remind you that gentle Jesus, meek and mild, would one day open the scrolls and judge the world of unbelief. And those who have opposed Christ will rush to the hills and hide themselves in the rocks, but they will find no mercy. The shepherd of Israel will also be the ruler of Israel. He is the king that has shown up in the little town of Bethlehem. And there will always be some 
who are hostile and oppose him. Now, friends, that's, that's just a reality. And we live in that reality. We live in kind of an uncertain reality, especially here in California. Let me draw your attention now to the rest of the story. That is diligent worship. We have these wise men, the magi, they're often called. Who are these wise men? Well, they're, they're seeking and they're worshiping the king. That's how we see them here. We, we, all we know about them really is from this record in Matthew's gospel. Um, they're likely from Persia and were a combination of wise men and the priesthood. What we do know for certain is that they were Gentiles, they were wise men, they were rich, um, they traveled on a long journey. Now, although our tradition identifies how many? Three, we're not told how many there are. The three comes from the, the three gifts, right? We might be able to understand a little bit more about them because in the Old Testament, um, the prophet Daniel was also a magi. And so there is actually some thinking, I'll just really make this, this brief, there's actually some thinking that what happened is when, when the children of Israel were taken captive by the Babylonians, Daniel being one of them, and many of those were taken to be wise men that were counselors then to um, the king at that point in time, um, were able to maintain and, and retain and continue to practice their Judaism. If you actually read Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll find that that was actually true, uh, that the Artaxerxes and stuff allowed them to do that. The synagogues actually started during that time. That the wise men then had this, this foundation of biblical knowledge, Old Testament knowledge, that they were able to read and to study because of the impact of the Jews being taken out to Babylon, okay? So th those are some ways that we think. Now, the, the text doesn't say that, but this is just kind of reasoning from different places in Scripture as to how in the world did these wise men even know that there was a king in Jerusalem or in Israel? There is some aspect to say they studied the Scriptures. There's also an aspect here that says that they came because they saw a star. There was some kind of a supernatural aspect. They saw this star that was a sign for them that the king was to be born. And so the scriptures actually lay out probably a time frame for them to be looking. And as they looked, they saw this star. We're not sure exactly what it is except for the fact that it's a star that God put, placed in the heaven. And not that it moved at this point in time, but it simply was there. And they came to Jerusalem saying, you know, where is he who's been born uh, king of the Jews? And then ultimately, I'm going to summarize it real quickly. Um, there's an aspect of God's sovereignty here too. That God is at work in the hearts and minds of those who are either seeking, using that in its proper sense, um, who are Gentiles, who are thousands of miles away, and yet God is at work stirring up in them something. I remember, I remember being in, in, in Russia and, and, and ministering in a place called Kirovichapetsk, who, and just like five years before that, there was no believer in that town. But there was one woman who somehow got a Bible and began to read it. And in reading it, she asked for help, but there was no one around that would help. She couldn't go to the Russian Orthodox Church. They weren't willing to help her because that was just kind of a re religious system. And so she ended up contacting, I can't remember exactly how it happened, she contacted some people, they ended up getting a hold of Slavic Gospel Association, and there was a pastor that was being trained, a young man, and, and he was sent down to Kurovichapetsk. Five years later, there's a church of 500. 
out of nothing. How does this happen? God's sovereignty, God's purposes, his providence in all of that, allowing all these circumstances to take place. Remember, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. God's sovereignty and his providence is not limited just to the big characters in Scripture. He is at work in all of our lives, carrying out his purposes. And then I want to draw our attention now to the Savior. The wise men listened to the Scripture and followed God's sign, and they finally came to the house where the king of the Jews had been born, verse 11. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The wise men fell down and worshiped this child as the king. A little earlier in the story, when they saw that star, it finally moved and stopped over the the place, the house where this, this child was, and it tells us there that they were rejoicing with, with great joy. <laughs> they had come on this long journey to purposely find the king, and finally they're, they're going to be there. He's, he's there. The king is, is here. So it's not just kind of like these guys walking in, like we often see, right? They come in, and they just kind of you know, throw down the stuff, and then Get down on a knee, right? It, there's more, I mean, there, there's this like, celebration. There's an anticipation. There's a joy that this, this one that we've been longing for, this one we've been looking for, we're going we're gonna to see him. And when we, we see him, we're going to bow down. And notice, they bow down and worship him first. And then come out the gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, friends, the challenge to you here is this. In your worship, are you diligent? Are you pursuing? Are you driving? Are you hungry? Are you eager? Are you joyfully anticipating the opportunity that you have to bow down before the Lord Jesus Christ as king? And in so doing, What valuable gifts do you have to offer? Well, if we have gold, it's probably meager, right? Uh, I don't have frankincense. I've got, you know, Jovan Musk, for those of you older generation. Um, I've got, you know, um, other ones that are out there. I really don't have Jovan Musk. Um, (laughs) Trust me. I hope I don't have Jovan Musk. Let's put it that way, right? Um, So I don't have those things, but here's, here's here's what we all have. We have the gift of time, to be stewards of the time that God has given us. And that doesn't mean that we neglect family, we neglect things that are our responsibility, but God is saying, listen, I I want what you're doing to be according to my time. So be good stewards of that and give him your time and and let him order it for you. Your, your, Your talents to use for his glory. Some of you have incredible talents that are still untapped, unseen, unused. Oh, they're they're maybe used in the context of, of, you know, society or some kind of a circle that you're in, but in the context of the church, um, those talents can be magnified and used to to a great extent. And and, and God is saying, listen, give me your talents also. Your your treasures, all all of your money is his anyway but he works through his children. And when we take the responsibility that God works through us to accomplish his purposes, giving is, is something that becomes a liberating thing. 
And we're, we're happy to do it. And so we, we can come in these ways and offer these gifts to the king. It's always fitting to ask ourselves at Christmas the following questions. Are we taking God seriously? Are we opening up the scriptures to see what God is saying about himself and about how we are to relate to him? Or do we think that we have our nativity scene figured out? See, when we open up God's word, understand this. Every passage, every chapter, every story, every verse ultimately is pointing to Christ. Charles Spurgeon used this illustration to help his people understand this. He said that there are, there, there's, there's London, but there are roads all over the country of England that ultimately lead and find themselves in London. So you may be on a, a footpath somewhere, but that footpath leads to a lane, and that lane leads to a road, and that road leads to a highway, and that highway leads to a freeway that takes you straight into the heart of London. Now that's today's version of what Spurgeon says, right? But that's true. You may be in a verse, but that verse is connected to a theme. That theme is connected to a book. That book and its theme is connected to a highway that takes you ultimately to Christ. And so every place you are in the word of God is drawing your attention to this one, Jesus Christ, the King, the Son of God, the Messiah. He is our Savior. Finally, just in closing, three things quickly. Expect hostility with grace and wisdom. If it's gonna come, if hostility's gonna be around, guess what? Don't be so angry with it. Expect it. Be ready. Be graceful. Be wise. Secondly, avoid indifference by valuing the treasure of Christ and his word. Just maybe take a moment during this Christmas season to get alone with your Bible. And just to be humble before God and say, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've revealed. Treasure this afresh. And treasure what you have in Christ afresh. And finally, keep being diligent to worship Jesus. Work out your salvation. How? With fear and trembling. That means work. All right? Don't let up. Don't just coast and say, oh, oh I'm, I'm arrived. I'm fine. This is good. I can just stay here now. No. Keep working out your salvation. Keep working hard at it. Keep pursuing Christ. And the more you do that, the more the word of God opens up for you. The more understanding of God's kindness and his grace toward you is revealed. Lord, help us today to consider the fact that you are the king of the Jews. But Lord, that also means that you are the king of kings. You're the king of the Jews and the Gentiles. You're the one who has come, yes, as a child, yes, as a savior to die on the cross, but Lord, the ultimate place that you would rest is on a throne. And Lord, you are going to, and you are already seated on that throne and we are to be worshiping you, we're to be humbling ourselves before you, we're to be saying when you speak, yes, Master, King, I will do your will. Lord, help us to see you afresh, to see 
Lord, how you want us to, to live our lives, even in the context of this Christmas, Lord, in a, in a fresh new way. Lord, not in a sentimental way, but Lord, in a way that flows out of what your scripture is screaming at us. And Lord, it is gonna be difficult. And we're gonna be tempted just to kind of coast. But Lord, help us to be eager, to be diligent. And Lord, to seek you afresh every day. We ask this in your precious name, amen.